Project Primary Care of Blacksburg's fourth podcast. Um, with me in the office today is Nurse Gina, almost nurse practitioner Gina. Oh my She's going to be a lot more to say. That's one of our topics for today. So what we want to do today is hit up um, quickly the uh, COVID numbers for Virginia. Not a lot to say, so we'll kind of breeze through that. And then we're going to talk about the differences between nurse practitioners and physicians, specifically osteopathic physicians. So this is a conversation we get to have a lot. So we'll, um, the more of you that listen to this, maybe the fewer times I'll have to explain what a DO is. And then we are going to talk about, um, briefly at the end of the, the podcast here, an update on the DPC nation, what's going on at the national level with legislation on direct primary care, specifically some interesting stuff on HSAs, which uh, conversation I've had again this week a couple times. So, so quickly, um, the New River Valley for COVID: eighty-eight cases, twelve hospitalizations, one death. Which we've said now several um, emails, podcasts in a row. So this is good. If you go to the VDH website, you know there are other places in the state that are still reporting new cases but we haven't reported new cases for a bit here and while this looks like what we've all been waiting for and exciting um you know realize we are uh, reopening as of today so as of last night at midnight that's so exciting we are in phase one so we'll see what happens you know i think i think lowe's and walmart and kroger are going to be packed to the gills with people this weekend so you want to go and i do not want to go go i do not want to go i'll be dipping into my covid stores now (laughs) um and we will see in the next two weeks if this reopening causes a spike in cases and i think it probably will did you have your party at 12 midnight your pancake party that you were bragging about (laughs) wanting to have So what she is referring to is we were going to have a midnight, whenever this reopened, we were going to have a midnight party, Um, but (laughs) Val and I watched (laughs) two BBC James Harriet, which if you have never watched those, you should, you'll laugh at us, I mean, this is like serious old person TV, it was really fun, and what's the, that's what we did. (laughs) You guys didn't know even along with Dr. Matt's affections for older things, that's why he keeps me around here, he even likes to watch older movie things. Right, 1970s miniseries from the BBC. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I don't have a whole lot more to say about COVID, you know, I, other than that, you know, um, everybody stay nice. There's some st- some pretty divided opinions on how this reopening is supposed to look and... Um, I don't know. It, at this point, it is what it is. Have we um, had to have some stay nice talks between you and me? Do you think? Over not COVID? too bad. Not over COVID. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe over your desk situation, but not over COVID. <laughs> we are, Gina and I are actively trying to figure out a the perfect desk for Gina. A place to put me. A place to hide me. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right, so. Um, Gina. Yes. Nurse practitioners. So for those of you who don't know, which can't be too many of you, um, Gina, um, among many things, is an RN. And 
um, two years ago? Two and a half years ago now? Two and a half years ago. Two and a half ago. years ago. Um, two and a half long, <laughs> long, long years ago. Right. Started working on her family nurse practitioner degree. And she is, I'm saying she's done, but she's got a few little hoops to jump through that are true. sort of delayed graduation with COVID and whatever. But um, anyway, she, and she why, is And why a, did we decide to do that? Yeah. Well, mainly because you're a glutton for punishment and just love school. Yeah, that's um, true. Mainly, but for the for from from my standpoint, um, we you know have left all along a lot of women's health on the table because a lot of women don't like to come see thirty-something-year-old um, dudes for their women's health, which is fine. So um, this is a perfect way for Gina, and Gina's focused some on women's health during her training. So a perfect. Um, I love what's the word a symbiosis or a we're complementarian here um, in our in our skill set (laughs) Um, and then also just you know creating not only that diversity in um, um, within the practice with different skill sets but creating um, a little bit more freedom for me not being tied down 100% of the time being on call and having to see patients so I'm excited about that. So tell us... Actually, stop. You tell me why you wanted to go to nurse practitioner school. Oh, and my then, gosh. And then let's talk about the differences between a nurse practitioner, or specifically a family nurse practitioner, and a family doc. Oh, gosh. So um, the truth is, is that like I did not have any huge aspirations to be a nurse practitioner. I wish I could tell you that I did, but that would not be true. And why is that? That is because I love being a nurse. I've been a nurse since I was 17. I'm 55 now, so that's a long time. Um, I love being a nurse. I, I had the fortunate just the fortunate occurrence to be an Air Force flight nurse for 13 years, which was one of the greatest things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, It was just a great experience and many other things. Excuse me. Over the course of like 40 years, I diversed out, just branched out to a bunch of other things. You have a legal nurse consulting degree Mm -hmm. and a master's in counseling. That's true. And something else. I think of it, a I'll let you guys of, in. A bunch she's of not, little she's not associate legal. degrees that, anyway, not to offend those who have little associate degrees, but yeah, that just seems so far away now. Um, but yeah, anyway, I went to NP school. I think it was a cultural thing because it was obvious that you were going to need help, and we were discussing what the practice would look like as it expanded. And that's really why I think that's how I ended up in in NP school. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wasn't, in all fairness, I was not looking to go back to school. I do love education, but it was mostly an issue over money, tell you the truth, because education is extremely costly. And at my age especially, you don't want to end up with a bunch of student loans, right? (laughs) Right. At my age, you don't want to end up with a bunch of students. <laughs> but yeah, no, cool. So, t- so family nurse practitioner. 
What? Uh, so let's talk about training. I think this is a good place to start. So what? What are the differences in training? Um, maybe you could get into some of like the philosophy of nursing versus the philosophy of doctoring. So. I would just like to give a plug to the first nurse practitioner. We'll start off with that. Oh, okay. okay. So, <laughs> actually, interestingly enough, that started in 1965, and it was initiated at the University of Colorado by a lady named Loretta Ford. She was a nurse, and she worked um, very similar in a relationship to what you and I have with a physician that she was very, very close to. His name was Henry Silver, and they were both broken um, over the fact that they could not take care of people that were in these underserved urban and rural areas. And because of that, together, a physician and a nurse came up with the concept of being a nurse practitioner. And that's how it started with Loretta Ford, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I think, I think it's a, you know, with, with the right... I can't, I mean, this is a good example. With the right people, it's a, it's a very logical next step. Very, very logical next step. Because remember, this all stems back from <clears throat> World War II in the United States when it just suffered from a, a huge acute shortage of doctors. And so we had um, these issues with urban populations that were escalating and rural communities were continuing to rely on just this inadequate medical infrastructure. And the demand for healthcare kept growing rapidly and, you know, just like fire. Mm -hmm. And um, it outstripped the supply. There just wasn't enough supply, and that's what led to this. And rising costs, and, you know, there was absolutely limited healthcare accessibility to the poorest of Americans, and that's kind of where this comes from. Yeah, so. So, for this would be helpful for me too. So I'm a nurse. Mm -hmm. So we start out. Let's go way back. Mm -hmm. So I technically am still in the state of Georgia, a nurse assistant, mm -hmm. which was like a three month program that I took in high school. Right. So you and, mean like a CNA? Is that what you're referring? A to? CNA, okay. and I think Virginia calls them just NAs is the title in Virginia. But anyway, okay. nurse assistants. Anyway. So, CNA. And, and for young people, and this is something I've encouraged many young people to look at, the beauty of nursing is it's, it's gradiated. Like, going into medical school, I kind of signed on a dotted line somewhere back, you know, like 23 years old, 22 years old, and there wasn't, there wasn't really a recourse. It, you, you were, I mean, that's when I took out my loans and started this whole thing. And you're on a 10 to 12-year 12, 12 path um, that you can't take back. And then you better like it because now you got loans to pay off. Whereas one beautiful thing about nursing, so if I'm in high school or I'm talking to a high schooler, I've, I've said this to many in the practice even, their nursing has, you know, you can start as a paramedic, you can start as a nurse practitioner. Okay, so talk me through like the steps to where you are now and how those steps are, uh, how they work in most places in the United States. So, well, I think, you know, some people, there are some programs, in fact, I go to one, I go to a program in Boston where you don't have to be a nurse for very long to become a nurse practitioner. Right. That's not what I did. Right. But, oh, no, okay, but so if, so I'm an EMT, yeah. I'm a CNA, right. then I can become a LPN. 
right, right which is a or you could even go to RN two school, year degree. but an LPN actually an LPN is really a one degree it's typically a one-year a, a one degree it's typically or 15 months something like that okay. 15 months 18 months it depends on the state okay. all of these are state regulated they're state specific it's typically at a vocational school okay so it's at a vocational school level and what you do is there's been a big debate in the nursing community for years about whether or not um, LPNs should even be called nurses. I absolutely think that they should. Mm-hmm. I, I can say from personal experience that the strongest education I received early on was as an mm-hmm. LPN. That's really where I mm-hmm. learned how to be a strong bedside nurse. Right. And then I decided to go to RN school. So that, so then you could, you know, and I've heard this called a bridge to an RN. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, there are bridge programs. Now, it's also a bridge because what happens is when you're in LPN school, you learn... Uh, a lot of technical school skills. Mm-hmm. You learn, you know, how to do things. The problem with that is you don't know why you're doing them, and that's mm-hmm. the difference between LPN and RN school. Is you learn, you know, what is the pathophysiology, what is the anatomy behind, what what is the reasoning and rationale behind this. Okay, so so then RN is typically again mm-hmm. two years. Yeah, two years plus you're, you know a lot of times your prereqs. Now, when I went to school again many many years ago, I graduated in 1987 from RN school. Um, it, it was very different. Now there's a lot of because of the again because of supply and demand, there are a lot of really really fast programs. Mm-hmm. They work very differently. Um, mm-hmm. That wasn't the case with me, but yeah, things change, right? Right, and so then. BSN, mm-hmm. correct? Is right. In, okay, so then this turns your RN degree right. into a four-year bachelor's degree. Right. And that was mostly done, initiated, because something called magnet, magnet certification, right. where hospitals wanted to be recognized in a different way. They wanted um, greater notoriety for having a different level of nursing. And so... Um, the world created this thing called magnet certification and magnet hospitals um, typically 70% of their nursing population are magnet nurses they're BSN they're BSN level nurses Um, now whether or not that makes you a better nurse at the bedside remains to be seen right but but if somebody says I'm getting if a nurse says I'm going for my BSN or right. my ba- if I'm going for my bachelor's, right. they're ter- they're going for that four year degree. Correct. Cool. Okay, and so that so I've got my bachelor's in nursing mm-hmm. now. What? How do I become a nurse practitioner? So you have your bachelor's, and then what you do is you apply to a school, and um, you know it's very similar to any other program that's really that you're looking for upward mobility. Um, because now what you're saying is you want a different level. Um, master prepared nurses are actually considered to be a specialized form of education and training in clinical practice over an RN in that they can prescribe, they can do procedures, right. that kind of thing. Right? More autonomy. Yes. M- more one-on-one autonomy with the patient yeah. to make decisions with the patient without... Physician oversight, or less physician oversight. Sure. Well, many states don't require any physician oversight now for nurse practitioners. They run independent practices. And then the highest level of education for nursing is a doctorate in nursing practice. And currently only 1% of nurses may be moving in the direction of 2%, but 1% of nurses hold that level of nursing, yeah. Very cool. Okay. Very useful. Um, And so... 
day to day. Well, we'll start with us, but well, let's see how this conversation goes. But so certainly, nurse practitioners, okay, all over the country, work in different settings. All right, so right. Um, you know, and there's even more specialization within that. Like there's right. nurse midwives, which uh, there's distinctives there, or mm-hmm. there's nurse practitioners that work with surgical groups or right. work with different specialist groups, but in primary care, so family nurse practitioners um, are going to be working in community health settings and also at physicians' offices. I mean, they are they work across a very large spectrum. Remember, the terminology for a family nurse practitioner is somebody who can work across the lifespan. There's mm-hmm. other specialties of nurse practitioners, ones like adult gerontology, another one is neonatal nurse practitioners, another one's pediatric nurse practitioners, and then women's health and gender-related nurse practitioners, and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners. Those are the designations. They used to be more, but they're narrowing. All of the others are very specialized and very center-focused, whereas a family nurse practitioner is not. It's very diverse and broad. Mm-hmm. So you you know you're you're trained to be able to take care of a one day old to a hundred day old. Right. Very similar to family practice. Okay. You know, I agree. Like internal medicine doctors start at age eighteen. You know, pediatricians stop at age eighteen. I don't I might not have the rubbers, but similar. Right. And so that, that family number you know that family word in your degree means you can walk into a room and deal with anything. Right? Supposed to be able to. Right. Be at least the first person to, to deal with crying. anything. Right. Without crying. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Perfect. And so, um, so yeah. So what's this going to look like at DPC of Blacksburg? That's a great question, Dr. Matt. <laughs> so we have um, been, well, we're still inventing this wheel is the honest truth. But, um, Probably be inventing it till the day we go home to be with the Lord, right? But the way the way we've kind of thought or envisioned this for now is, um, you know, all patients will be assigned to one of the docs. You know, you're paying for a relationship with your doctor. So, Sawaya so or myself, uh, Doctor Lekashiri or myself, will will be your doctor, and then Gina will be our, you know, Girl right, Friday, right hand. <laughs> Girl Friday, um, and so specific for things that she, you know, has expertise in like women's health. I mean that's a no brainer. But then just for increasing our availability, um, those of you who have known Jane and I for you know six years now um, know that we communicate almost All the constantly, time. <laughs> almost constantly, and you know, and that we. I've been doing this together long enough to be on the same page. Um, I'm exaggerating. So we're not always on the same page. No, we're definitely not on the same page. But we know what each other thinks. Exactly. That we so, can agree. We know how each other will respond. Exactly. So I, I'm very excited about this. I think this is going to be a sweet... Um, um, improvement on the on the skill set we have available here and the perspective and um, I think it's going to be awesome 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 we really didn't get into osteopath DOs but no I think we kind of should a little bit don't you well so briefly so most I think of our patients have already crossed this um, bridge but 
you know, you'll notice at the end of Dr. Licasheri and myself, our names, we have a D-O instead of an M-D. So the main difference, so, so what is that? So um, osteopathic and allopathic medicine are two schools of medicine in the United States. The two schools of medicine in the United States um, both started around the same time. Osteopathic medicine, um, okay, and so to clarify that, osteopathic medicine gets you a DO, allopathic medicine gets you an MD in your mm -hmm. training. Um, osteopathic medicine initially retained and has continued to retain a lot of the musculoskeletal um, manual medicine Don't you get a sets. lot more training in that? A lot more anatomy, mm -hmm. a lot more manual medicine. Um, so what is but you guys sit for the same licensing boards, right? Correct. All right. Correct. So, so, so manual medicine. What do I mean by that? So a lot of people think chiropractic medicine. So, chiropractic medicine is um, sort of a offshoot of osteopathic medicine. Um, Dr. Palmer left DO school to mm -hmm. start chiropractic medicine, and they are very broad. I mean, and not very nationally homogenous. So chiropractors do a lot of different things in different regions even within the same town you'll get chiropractors doing different things when an osteopath says manual medicine we're talking actually about a pretty distilled set of manual medicine skills that are nationally homogenous all DOs are trained fairly similarly I mean certainly some differences between schools boards are very similar um, so you're using some fancy words, Dr. Matt, but doesn't this come down to a difference in the philosophy of care on some level? Because I always thought that osteopathic approaches involve focusing on the whole body and especially when sure. it came to preventative care. Is that true? or? Sure. So, so, sure. So to finish developing my thought here and then I'll come into yours. Um, so about 2%, you know, like I've seen different, numbers on this but like some like two percent of osteopathic physicians still use their manual medicine skills and so in, in the distinctions between a do and an md have just almost completely blurred um this last year we combined all graduate medical education for do's and mds so the boarding is almost identical except for one extra piece we have to do on the manual medicine piece but the differences you know and and money drives everything um, so the differences in DO school acceptance and MD school acceptance is based on kind of what you're getting at. You know, DO schools are tasked, most DO schools are very tasked with, by their funding, with g creating primary care doctors. Right. And that fits beautifully with the traditional osteopathic um, philosophy of whole person care, um, um, primary care, you know, relationship with the doctor, times, I mean, this, it dovetails into DPC so very well. when you look um, at the statistics, when you look at DOs versus MDs, the statistics mm -hmm. are way higher in family physicians, internists, and pediatricians, is my understanding of correct. it. Correct. Okay. Correct. And lower, probably, on research medicine, pharmaceutical research, you right. know, larger research universities tend to be MD, allopathic schools so so yeah of my like medical school class you know over half of us are in primary care right. now that's not to say that osteopaths can't specialize many go into orthopedic medicine sports medicine um, 
some of these surgical subspecialties that really focus on anatomy um, for sure. And honestly, so, they kind of do everything now. And like I said, it's just all blurring, but that's the traditional answer. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. And so, and I think most of you... Uh, but there's confusion about it, right, sometimes? Yeah. Because people will think that if you're a DO, you did not undergo the same level of rigorous study and residency programs or licensure than an MD may have gone through. And that's not true at all. It basically is the same with the DO having more of an emphasis, at least 200 hours, right, of additional training in osteopathic, in skeletal, musculoskeletal medicine. Correct. Correct. Okay. I just want to make sure I have it right in my mind. And, um... It's just, we were just talking about this actually this week <laughs> there's there's so in a town like Blacksburg where we have an osteopathic school mm-hmm. like people know what a DO is uh, but it's very regional right so uh, Michigan has a lot of DOs California has a lot of DOs Florida has a lot of DOs Appalachia has a lot of DOs but there's other parts of the country where there aren't a lot of DOs and it's all MDs um, but um, we People, people think I'm an optometrist. <laughs> That's an OD, by the way. People think I'm a chiropractor. Um, so we've heard kind of everything. Um, and, um, yeah, we don't get our feelings hurt whatsoever. I don't think you're as wealthy as a <laughs> chiropractor would be. No offense to the chiropractors that are on there. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Um, so, yeah. So there's probably some more nuance there. But if you have more questions about that, let us know sometime either of those topics. That sounds good. So, in a good way to summarize this, I think, Mm -hmm. on some level is, would you agree that your total time in training from start to finish, what was it, a minimum of about 11 years from start to finish, is that true? Yeah, 4 plus 4 plus 3. Okay. For family practice residency. Well, good. I guess I guessed right then. (laughs) And a nurse practitioner's total time in training is typically somewhere around eight years. So um, that's, I guess that's the difference on some level, right? The amount of time invested in education. Yeah, and I think the biggest difference probably is that last period where a, a residency is more like an apprenticeship where you are you know you have I mean you're a doctor you can write scripts you can see patients as a resident right but you're heavily supervised and you get this extended period of time to practice medicine and then come back and talk to your attendings and say here's what I did what do you think um and so now you're going to do that for me basically so so Gina's now (laughs) our resident I'm just kidding yeah I'm I'm the residency and training (laughs) our our resident nurse practitioner I love that I love Um, that that's interesting and then running out of time here, but um, we want to hit on um, some legal things about DPC that um, aren't dramatically changing. We wish they were, uh, specifically the, some of these HSA laws. But um, so I'll jump into that. Na- nationally, DPC continues to grow. Um, COVID has been a really interesting curveball for direct primary care. We're seeing a lot of. I saw one study, 60%, one survey, 60% of family physicians will be furloughed by June if this continues. Um, So what does that mean? So in fee-for-service practices, Mm -hmm. traditional um, insurance-based practices, 
um, they're not able to see a lot of primary care right now mm. because of the COVID thing. Right. And stuff is, cans are getting kicked down the road. Patients are getting, you know, it, it, they're doing telemedicine where mm-hmm. they can. Um, but a lot of this stuff is just not happening. Um, um, as opposed to DPC practices who are largely going full bore right now. Um, and so uh, I've been on several um, Zooms and fa- live FaceTime live things with other DPC docs, and DPC seems to be doing very well through this. Um, we already were doing a lot of telemedicine. We already, you know, when you have a relationship with the patient, you know, you don't have to talk them into coming to see you. They come to see you. So, um, so the... Um, so, so we're we're actually seeing a lot of in, new interest in DPC, other docs, you know, sitting at home waiting on their job to pick up. So they're researching DPC, calling us with questions, which is exciting. So hopefully we'll get some more people coming over to the dark side soon. Um, but one question we had this week and that we uh, routinely answer is, can I use my HSA to pay for my DPC mm. membership, right? So first off, what's an HSA? So f- <clears throat> many of you know this, have these health savings accounts. These are uh, money that you can, if you qualify for it, which there's a lot of legal to speak about if you qualify or not, but you can put money into an account um, that you are not taxed on as long as you use that money for health care. And there's some caps on how much you can hide in this account from your taxes, um, whether that's based on mostly that's based on your income how much you can put in per per year um so employers use these um as you know they'll match you know if if the employee puts in a certain amount of money in their hsa the employee employer can match it as a benefit um and then you have a card that you walk around town with and if you need to spend it on health care that's your health care spending card as long as expenses qualify now when Obamacare came out, or the Affordable Care Act, right, there was some language in there that made direct primary care, put direct primary care into sort of this vague space of, um, is it a health plan? So one of the qualifications for an HSA is if you already have insurance, you know, if you have a major medical insurance plan, you can't also have an HSA. So... Um, this language confused DPC or confused um, the IRS about DPC is DPC a insurance plan and those of you who are members of my practice know um, I am not insurance <laughs> I, I mean in any financial sense of the term um, right I think according to the IRS didn't they consider DPC memberships to be kind of something like a secondary type of health plan right Right, and it, it all hinges on that term, health plan. Mm-hmm. You know, what is a health plan? So, so for but this is where the reforms now, happening, right? Yeah. So for years now, this has been a big hurdle. Um, we, the no one, the IRS has not litigated this. This thousands of people across the country um, are using their HSAs to pay for their DPC membership with few hurdles, if any. Um, occasionally, we'll itemize a receipt for somebody. Um, I um, so that they can show that they're you. This is a medical service, not a health, not an insurance plan. Um, but we would, if we had this clarification legally, this would open the floodgates for employers to start using direct primary care much in in a much cleaner way, right. and, and give their employees HSAs. Um, anyway, so 
am I leaving anything? I mean, is that I don't think basically so. a hook? You know, I talk about this yeah. all the time, so I can race through it. But um, um, so the first answer is for a lot of you, go for it. You know, we can use your HSA. It's really a problem. Um, what you're dealing with is an IRS gray area that has not been litigated for almost a decade now, um, but it is a gray area. Okay, so the the second answer here is. Um, what what is changing? So there have been multiple um, proposals, um, including a, a piece that was in the CARES Act that would have clarified this that was struck at the last hour mm-hmm. um, to um, to clarify this legislatively. Um, what we're kind of getting now is almost a backdoor. Um, so January first, they are. Um, New legislation was passed that allows you to have what they call an EBHRA, and we're going to see employers, we're hoping to see employers move towards this instead of an HSA. Um, it has a, a few less hurdles to jump through um, as far as giving it to your employees, and it does have clear language, uh, much clearer language surrounding um, membership-based retainer services like a um, direct primary care. So... Um, I think the language specifically says that it supports direct primary care and sees it as a model of care that provides a pathway to continuous, comprehensive, and coordinated primary care for patients. Right, which which is language from back... Some of you will remember the um, patient-centered medical home, which um, was, was awesome. It was kind of this thing that everybody was for because everybody thought it was something different, right? Some, uh, a friend of mine was using an example it was like saying I like pizza <laughs> well everybody has their favorite flavor of pizza we aren't all necessarily talking about the same thing so everybody was a big fan of patient center medical home and it didn't really pan out to be the great panacea to the American healthcare system um, I'm biased I think DPC could be that um, and I, I sort of think fighting against DPC legally is kind of like fighting against Christmas <laughs> um, uh, if people understand what we do and how we do it, you know nobody doesn't 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 like this. So right. anyway, I'm really excited. I th- I hope this is a way for um, us to get some more legal clarification on some things and um, hopefully grow DPC across the country you know into what, the employer health space. What's exciting about this? You know why the change has really come about? It's because patients have demanded this for direct primary care practices um, to allow patients to have access to them because of this new emerging primary care model that has been so successful. So this is actually an initiative that is primarily driven by patients and not physicians, which is amazing to me. Absolutely. I mean, um, all across the board, you know, we're typically sort of this entrepreneurial vein of physicians that are way too busy to drive to D.C. and write letters to congressmen. And a lot of this advocacy is absolutely being done by patients who are just taking it upon themselves to represent their doctors. So we're super thankful to those who, even in our practice, who have helped us with that. So Super, super thankful, so, as Dr. Matt would say. Super, <laughs> I tend to repeat things, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> and now I am, thanks to you. Rub it off. So, um, anyway, thanks for listening. If you have questions about any of that, if we've um, said things that are not crystal clear, um, 
shoot us emails or give us a shout. And if there's anything you want to hear on a podcast, let us know. Questions you might have. Um, so yeah, hang in there. Enjoy the reopening this weekend. Stay safe. Um, and we'll talk next week. <laughs>